0: And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Sham Joshi. He's assistant professor of medicine in the section of allergy and clinical immunology at OHSU. Dr. Joshi earned his medical degree in his home state of Kentucky at University of Louisville, went on to do residency at Brown University in Rhode Island and fellowship at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. He's currently the medical director of the allergy and immunology clinic at OHSU which has been an increasingly busy practice and particularly among the many COVID and COVID vaccine questions. So thank you, Dr. Joshi. He also serves on various institutional and national committees. His main other research interests include the management of allergic rhinitis, drug allergies, and aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. We are so delighted to have Dr. Joshi come share his teaching and his expertise with our Providence audience, thank you. I will turn it over to you, Dr. Joshi.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really look forward to this talk and a lively discussion at the end. I've hopefully left plenty of time for questions and answers. Um, So today's lecture, we're gonna talk about penicillin allergy and how important it is to remove any labels that really shouldn't be there. All right, no actual or potential disclosures for this specific talk. Um, These are the objectives, you guys can take a look at that later. So really our presentation today is gonna be mainly about penicillin allergies. And at the end, we're gonna spend a little bit of time on penicillin, cephalosporin, cross-reactivity. And I threw in a few slides about the COVID vaccine. Um, Over the past month or even two months, we've just been inundated with referrals for COVID vaccine, allergic, questions um, and i feel like it'd be pretty high yield information that um, we'll, we'll talk about at the end here all right so starting off with a couple of case presentations so we have rj he's an 18 year old male with newly diagnosed syphilis and we typically treat that with penicillin so we have dk's 32 year old female presents to the hospital for delivery of her first child and is known gbs positive positive. and we have jc who is a 63 year old male with a history of diabetes and stage renal disease has had a renal transplant is on chronic immunosuppressive therapy and presents with pneumonia whenever any of these patients present we often reach for penicillins as first line therapy but the problem is all of these patients have a history of a penicillin allergy and it's in their chart and because of that we treat these patients with alternate medications and that leads to some adverse ramifications, which we're gonna talk about. This is not meant to be read, but this is really just showing that penicillin is still first-line therapy for a lot of conditions. We use it on the outpatient side, we use it on the inpatient side, and even just by having somebody having a penicillin allergy in their chart, we often have to reach for second, third, fourth-line therapy because we can't use the first-line therapy for a lot of these conditions. So, when we're talking about drug allergies in general, there's a huge difference between patients that have an allergy label in their chart and patients that have actually had an adverse reaction to a medication. So, if we're looking at kind of ad- allergy labels, this was a large um, hospital system database review, and they found that about thirty six percent of patients in the EMR had some type of drug allergy. thirty six, one out of three patients. Of these 36% 36, 36, um, of patients, 43 of them, so nearly half of them, had multiple allergies in their chart. So drug allergies are very common, and I'm sure you guys see this all the time. You look at a patient's chart, and it's bright on the left side right under the allergy section. And 4 to 7% of these, of these patients have multiple, like, five or more drug allergies listed in their chart. And we consider these patients um, multiple drug intolerance syndrome. It is exceedingly unlikely that somebody has a true hypersensitivity reaction to such unique distinct chemicals, chemical structures that, and so when we think of these patients that have five, six, 10, 20, 30 medications on their allergy list, they're probably not truly allergic to most if any of them. They, they probably have an underlying condition that's leading to adverse symptoms to a lot of these medications. And that's why we call it multiple drug intolerance syndrome. And that's a whole different talk. We're not going to go down that route today. Um, and the main risk factor for patients having drug allergies in their chart is drug exposure. So that's why we see these patients with cystic fibrosis. They have a lot of drugs because they've gotten a lot of drugs over their lifetime. So there are a lot of drugs on the allergy list. Then if we kind of shift over to patients, okay, what How many patients actually have an adverse drug reaction, like a known adverse drug reaction? Not just a label in their chart, but a true adverse drug reaction. It's actually pretty common as well. So up to 25% of prescriptions lead to some type of adverse drug event. A lot of these are predictable. When you give somebody diphenhydramine, they're gonna get sedated. That's still considered an adverse drug event, but it's very predictable. Of these 25%, 13% were considered serious. Um, and that that term is a little bit ambiguous. Um, but when we think about okay, let's talk about true hypersensitivity reactions. So what we're actually considered allergic reactions, immune mediated. Only five to ten percent of these adverse drug um, events act are true hypersensitivity. So hypersensitivity reactions are pretty rare, but often overreported in the allergy charts. Again, this is a just a comprehensive list of. There are a lot of types of drug allergies out there. A lot of types of drug hypersensitivities. They're not all anaphylaxis. They're not all Steven Johnson syndrome. They can be, there's many, many different types. Um, and it's just important to understand that patients can present in different ways. All right, now let's, let's narrow down to penicillin. So if we look at the US in general, eight to 10% of the US population carries a penicillin allergy in their chart so that's around 30 35 million people in the u.s have a penicillin allergy listed but if you go about and you test each of these patients over 95 probably closer to 98 99 percent of these patients can actually tolerate penicillin so we're talking 30 million people have this 29 plus million can actually tolerate it so it's actually a pretty rare allergy to truly have but often labeled that way. And one, time, one thing we always we often see is, hey, my, my mother had a penicillin allergy, my brother had a penicillin allergy, I must have a penicillin allergy. It doesn't, it's not a family, it's not hereditary, there's no family tie to this. So if somebody's avoiding penicillin just because of the family history, you can pretty much just tell them you're not allergic and give them a penicillin. Um, there's no testing or anything needed in that situation, unless the patient's too anxious, obviously. So why is this, why is the label rate so high, but the actual allergy rate so low? And there's a couple of theories. One is we often, or especially 20, 30 years ago, when children had rashes, whether it was an urticarial rash or whether it was just a nonspecific macular papular rash, we often want to blame something. So we blame the antibiotic. What antibiotic do kids mostly get? Penicillins. So they often get this label in the chart, even though the rash had nothing to do with the penicillin. It probably had more to do with the underlying infection. Ear infection, if they had mononucleosis, it probably had nothing to do with the drug. And then on top of that, even if they truly were allergic when they were a child, just avoiding penicillin for five years, 50% of those people will lose their sensitivity. If you avoid it for 10 years, it's closer to 80 to 90% of patients will lose their sensitivity. And then we see these adults that are 70 years old and have been avoiding it for 50 years. Well, they're really unlikely to be allergic at this point. Um, and so giving that information to patients, they feel very reassured that, oh, okay, maybe I can take it. Um, and they're much more willing to, to be interested in an evaluation. There have been studies that have looked at, okay, this person had an allergy, no longer have an allergy, if we give them penicillin, are they more likely to become sensitized again, become allergic again? And the answer is no. There, there, There doesn't seem to be any increased risk in these patients to become resensitized after subsequent doses of penicillin. So I think we feel reassured that this is a pretty safe thing to do is try to get these penicillin allergies off their chart. So why is this important? So if somebody has this label in their chart, we often have to use inferior or more toxic antibiotics because we don't have access to penicillin because they're allergic to it. And so when that happens, we get higher treatment failures, we get increased um, adverse events, and then we lead to more antibiotic resistance because we just didn't give them the right antibiotic in the first place, and they stay longer in the hospital, they get more infections, and then we, this endless cycle. Um, And unfortunately, this this happens very, very often, especially on the inpatient side. And so back, this is probably seven, eight years old now, but uh, from the Choosing Wisely campaign, one of the major um, factors that, they, that the um, campaign looked at from the allergy side was, don't overuse non-beta-lactam antibiotics in patients with a history of penicillin allergy without an appropriate evaluation. And so, these patients should be evaluated. And if they're not evaluated, then they should be. They need to be evaluated before we decide what antibiotic to use. So, this was the f- one of the first big papers that came out um, about penicillin allergy. This was back in 2014. This was a Kaiser study um, in Southern California. And the first thing that they showed was, okay, let's look at our entire database here. So, they looked at 51,000 hospitalizations of patients that had a penicillin allergy, compared that to 103,000 patients that didn't have a penicillin allergy that were hospitalized. And they showed that, okay, if you have a penicillin allergy, it's going to affect which antibiotic they choose, which makes sense, right? If you're allergic to penicillin, you're gonna be using more alternative antibiotics. And so it definitely affects antibiotic stewardship. Um, you get higher rates of vanco use, Cipro, Clinda, Metro, Um, Fluoroquinolones, everything goes up because you don't have access to the penicillins because of this label in the chart. And then after that study, there have been many, many studies looking at, okay, what else, what other outcomes are affected because of this label in the chart? And again, this isn't because they're actually allergic. This is because they have this label in their chart. And they found higher rates of treatment failures, and we'll go through some of this data in a little bit more detail. Um, increased risk for C. diff, MRSA, VRE, um, increased future healthcare utilization. So they've shown longer hospital lengths of stay in patients that have a penicillin allergy label, higher rates of readmission, um, increased healthcare dollars, which is how we've been able to be more aggressive with penicillin allergies because we can show the hospital, we can show the healthcare system, we're saving you a lot of money by doing this. Um, And then higher rates of surgical site infections. So let's go through some of this data um so treatment failure rates in non-beta-lactams and so this first study um, looked at patients that had um, gram-negative bacteremia and they looked at patients that had penicillin allergy labels in their chart and those that didn't and so the patients that had a a penicillin allergy listed in their chart received a non-beta-lactam and so their treatment failure rate was 39 percent versus those that um, had a beta-lactam Uh, was given a beta-lactam because they didn't have a penicillin allergy and that was 27 percent so just using this alternative second line antibiotic your treatment failure rate significantly increases which is unfortunate the second study is a a va study and they looked at mssa bloodstream infections um, and they found that patients that received beta-lactams because again they didn't have a penicillin allergy in their chart had a 35 percent lower mortality rate Uh, for definitive treatment compared to those that used vancomycin. So, we're seeing morbidity improvement and even potentially mortality improvement by using appropriate antibiotics. Um, This is the same study as the original one I showed you from um, the Kaiser group, and they showed that the patients that, again, had a penicillin allergy in their chart ended up with higher prevalence rates of C. diff, MRSA, and VRE. And that kind of makes sense, right? If we're doing a little bit more narrow spectrum, we're treating the um, infection appropriately, you're going to have less rates of these side, these complications versus if you're using more broad spectrum antibiotics um, and then ending up with more resistant infections. This was a really great study. It came out a couple of years ago um, out of the Brigham and Women's Group in, at Harvard. And what they wanted to show was, okay, these patients are going in for surgery, and these are a variety of surgeries, mainly as orthopedic, but several other kind of GI um, surgeries as well. And they separated the patients that had a reported penicillin allergy and those that didn't have a reported penicillin allergy. So if we look at this top group here, um, the patients that had a penicillin allergy label, very few of them received beta-lactams, which... I guess makes sense because it's in their chart. People are going to be concerned about giving them beta-lactams. Versus if, because of the penicillin allergy label, they end up getting these alternative antibiotics, even though beta-lactams are the primary choice. So a lot of them got vancomycin, a lot of got Clinda, Gent, and fluoroquinolone. Um, So clearly there is a difference in choice of antibiotics just because of the label, and again, doesn't mean people are truly allergic that just means that there's a label in the chart and so when they controlled for surgery type age sex race um, and anesthesiologist class uh, procedure duration wound class everything they found that there was a 51 percent increased risk of surgical site infections in patients that had a penicillin allergy label and that could be directly attributed to the use of an alternative Non-beta lactam antibiotic. If you talk to any surgeon, they will be very interested in any possible way to decrease their surgical site infection rate by fifty-one percent. They will be, they would be very excited about this. So, what's the anesthesiologist's perspective? Why are we switching? So, up to there's this is a pretty nice survey that they looked at a, about sixty percent of anesthesiologists would not give a beta lactam antibiotic to penicillin allergic patients. And their main reason was they're worried about medical legal concerns. But we've had a lot of studies supporting the fact that you could do penicillin allergy evaluations prior to surgery. So get the penicillin off the chart, then we don't have to worry about it. There's also been several studies looking at cefazolin without prior evaluation or testing in penicillin allergic patients. Because the cross-reactivity between cefazolin and penicillin is really non-existent. There isn't any cross-reactivity. And we'll go through some of the data at the very end here. Um, and so kind of the OHSU perspective, and I've been working with the anesthesiologist is we, we pretty much use Cefazolin as first-line therapy, if it's first-line for the appropriate surgery, um, in penicillin allergic patients, unless anaphylaxis is documented as the penicillin reaction. I would argue that even if penicillin, even if anaphylaxis was documented, giving Cefazolin is still completely safe. But we're still working on that. We're trying to gather some more data um, to to make that switch. But in general, we should be able to give Cephasline. All right, so let's take a quick second here. So we've talked about why penicillin allergy labels are not good and why they can be detrimental to patient care, to healthcare costs, um, to outcome data. So now let's kind of go to the next circle. How do we evaluate patients for a penicillin allergy? So there's a lot of questions here. Do we test them on the inpatient side? Do we test them on the outpatient side? How do we test them? Do we do skin testing? Do we just challenge them by giving them the penicillin? Who should be doing this? Should this be an allergist-driven situation or non-allergist? So let's go through this. So traditionally, penicillin testing has always been on the outpatient side um, because allergists our prime the primary driver here we don't like going in the hospital if we don't have to so we we like staying on the outpatient side um, and we can perform multiple evaluations simultaneously prior to the pandemic, I used to have a penicillin clinic and I would just test between four to six patients in a half day if they're allergic to penicillin or not it's a little bit harder with with the whole virtual situation but it used to be very efficient that way um, and sometimes but the problem is it can be difficult to schedule so, if patients don't have a regular touch point, a lot of them are like, I don't need a penicillin right now. I'm not going to come in for testing. So it's really difficult to schedule. So you can also do it in the hospital hospital setting. Um, the incidence of these pa- of penicillin allergies in the inpatient setting is higher because these patients are usually more sick. They've um, they've been on more medications in the past. There are higher rates of allergy labels in the inpatient population, up to 15%, compared to the 8 to 10% in the general population. These patients are generally older. They're more ill. They have a higher need for antibiotics, so if that makes sense. We should we should be evaluating these patients. Um, but testing can can alter antibiotic therapy uh, right then and there. Right, if they come in for pneumonia and we do the penicillin testing, we could change their antibiotics right there. The problem is it's not very efficient because we have to go to each patient's room and we can't do this all in one clinical setting at a time. So what's the right answer? They're really isn't I think both is probably the right answer. So, how do we do allergy testing? There's two different ways, and we'll go through some of the inpatient data in a second, um, but how do we do testing? So, traditionally, we used to, we, we've done penicillin skin testing. And what that entails is that we do skin prick testing, like we do for environmental allergies or food allergies, um, to several, several penicillin derivatives. And so penicil, penicil oil polylysine is the major determinant, and penicillin G is our minor determinant. So these are two of the more common um, determinants that people are allergic to. They're not typically allergic to the actual penicillin. It's after it gets broken down, that's where the allergic reaction typically happens. Um, and so we could do skin testing and intradermal testing to each of those components. The other option, or part of it, is doing an observed oral challenge. Um, and essentially we bring people in we give them oral amoxicillin and we just watch them and we can do it graded so we can give a small dose first monitor them for 15-20 minutes then give them the rest of the dose and monitor them for an hour or we can just all at once and just give them the full dose right up front the skin testing the negative predictive value is is fantastic it's about 97 98 percent, up to 100 percent certain studies But because that 2%, okay, they may still have a reaction. We typically do the oral amoxicillin challenge after the skin testing because the challenge is really the gold standard, right? If they can tolerate it, they can tolerate it in the future, which is great. The positive predictive value is not really well established and kind of makes sense. If somebody has a positive test, nobody's super excited about testing them um, or challenging them to the medication because the skin test was positive. We don't really know what the positive predictive value is, but in general, the negative predictive value is so good and it's so rare to have a positive test that the skin testing does work really well. So let's look at some data here. So before I came to OHSU, I was down at UT Southwestern, Parkland in Dallas. Um, So this is a study we just published recently from some of the work I did down there. And so this was an inpatient service. And so we're looking at patients, um, 665 patients underwent evaluation. Some of them were cleared just based off history alone because they got a penicillin last week or something like that. Um, and some of them were directly challenged. The rest of these patients underwent skin testing. This was a pretty conservative approach by skin testing a lot of patients. It's probably not necessary, but this is how it was done there. And so 627 underwent skin testing. Of those 627, 600 of them had negative skin test, which is great. 10 of them had positive or indeterminate skin tests. So the evaluation was abandoned. They kept the um, testing, they kept the penicillin allergy in their chart. And then 17 negative, uh, 17 of the um, patients had a negative histamine control. Histamine we use as our positive control. And so we just excluded those patients from the, the study. Out of the 600 that had a negative skin test, 596 passed the oral challenge. And so the penicillin allergy was removed from their chart. So, if you look at these patients that if you take the six hundred and twenty seven and you remove the patients that had a negative control because those were you just couldn't test. And so, and then you see that five hundred and ninety six passed the challenge, we're talking about a removal rate of around ninety seven percent that we can remove the allergy ninety seven percent of the time when we evaluate these patients, which is fantastic. So, the question is, do we need to be skin testing everybody? Because the rates are so low, can we just give these people amoxicillin or some kind of penicillin and just watch them? So this is the only um, randomized trial that's that's really available. And what they did, this was out of Vanderbilt, um, and what they did was that they they took 159 patients um, and they separated them out into those that they wanted a skin test and those that directly challenged. These were only patients that had minor cutaneous reactions in their history. They removed the patients that had anaphylaxis, but these are just patients that had minor cutaneous reactions. And what they found was the positive skin testing rate was around 12%, which is much higher than what we saw in our study, um, versus the patients that were directly challenged, only 3.8% of them actually had a positive test. And I think this clearly shows that the skin testing will lead to some false positive results, and that if we can skip the skin testing in these patients, you're gonna, get, you're gonna be able to remove the label in more patients, which is great. And I think what's most important here is the cost. So if you do the skin testing plus the challenge, it's around 400 bucks for time, equipment, things like that. But the direct challenge, so again, just bringing them into clinic, giving them amoxicillin, watching them for a little while, for an hour after their challenge, and sending them off is much cheaper. And so there is a significant difference when you're looking at these patients over time. Um, So we're saving the healthcare system a lot of money by directly challenging these patients. How do we do it here at OHSU? We are generally more aggressive because of this recent data that came out showing that direct challenge is probably very helpful. So this looks complicated, but let's go through this kind of one by one here. So when patients are sent to us because of a penicillin allergy, in their chart. We have to categorize this as, do they have a mild reaction or a different type of reaction? The vast majority of patients have some minor rash, so not urticaria, some kind of macular papular rash, nonspecific rash. Um, And oftentimes, patients will say hives, but when you ask them to describe the rash, they'll call it small little red bumps that lasted a week. Those aren't hives. Um, So any kind of pictures that they can give, and any more descriptions helpful for determining this. Okay. So if they didn't have hives, this was, if it was delayed, if it was macular papular rash, if it was really remote and the patient doesn't remember the reaction, or the, then we essentially see, okay, do they have any significant underlying conditions? Are they pregnant? Are they, um, do they have any pulmonary cardiovascular disease? Are they hemodynamically stable? And if the answer is no to any of those questions, we just give them a direct oral challenge. And so that bypasses skin testing for the vast majority of patients. But if they do have some of those conditions, then okay, we'll see them, we'll skin test them, and then do the oral challenge. And the vast majority of those patients pass as well. All right, let's take a different scenario here. So their history is concerning for an IgE-mediated reaction. So it happened within the first hour or two of ingestion They they report anaphylaxis or they report angioedema, hives, wheezing, laryngeal edema, hypotension. So some of these we consider severe reactions, but they're still in this IgE-mediated category. Then we ask them, was this recent or was this a long time ago? If this was more than 10 years ago, then we're going to follow the same route as the mild reaction. Do they have a significant underlying condition? No. Then we'll give them the oral challenge. Yes. Then we'll do the skin testing. But... If they, if these if this IgE-mediated reaction was less than 10 years ago, um, we will go directly to the skin testing. And this is really based off the data that I showed earlier that 80 to 90% of patients just avoiding penicillin 10 years after the reaction lose their allergy. So this has been a very safe and effective method for evaluating it. But if they come to us and they have a history of SJS or TEN or serum sickness um, or any DRESS, any of these, we're not going to actually evaluate them. Um, We're not going to do any testing. There's no none of the testing we have the skin testing specifically really is helpful for making these diagnoses and ruling out. Are they going to react again? Um, But it's actually pretty rare that these patients have. This this type of reaction, the vast majority of the time it's some kind of non specific rash when they were a kid Um, and so we can avoid these. Or we can avoid this section of the, of the flowchart pretty easily and evaluate the vast, vast majority of patients. So here at OHSU, we've, we've set up an inpatient penicillin allergy service, which has worked fantastically. So what that means is we actually we've hired an inpatient allergy pharmacist whose main job is to evaluate and determine um, the allergy status of patients in, in patients that have a penicillin allergy in their chart. Why do we choose a pharmacist? Well, they're natural partners. They work on antimicrobial stewardship very well. They're very good at acquiring uh, medication and allergy histories because this is what they do. Um, and they can advise primary services on optimal post um, testing antibiotics. So if they test negative, they can be like, okay, well, this person has um the sensitivities for their infection maybe we should try to use this antibiotic because their testing is negative for the penicillin and so how does our pharmacist do this so they there's actually a direct order in epic that any inpatient service can request her services and so it's just a penicillin allergy evaluation so she'll prioritize those patients first if she doesn't have any um consults in the the chart for that day She'll actually just screen the EMR and look for patients that are on broad-spectrum antibiotics that have a penicillin allergy label, and those that are high-risk comorbidities, so diabetes, malignancy, CF, um, and we'll prioritize those patients. And just go talk to the primary team, ask them, hey, I think this person would have benefited from a penicillin allergy evaluation. Are you interested? And she'll go test them. So how does this work so far? So we just published this data probably a few months ago, actually three or four months ago, and um, showing how she was able to evaluate these patients. So looking at, I think this was was originally 100 patients and based off of history alone, so it's interview only in the top graph, the middle bar, she was able to remove the allergy label in 40% of patients because they recently tolerated a penicillin. So just digging through the chart, spending some time, we're able to remove the label that way. The vast majority of patients, close to 60 patients, she did a direct challenge based on our algorithm that we just went over. And they passed the algorithm and they did great. And then there were two patients that, because of their more uh, recent history, ended up uh, getting penicillin skin testing. So on the bottom graph here, you can see that the vast majority, 95, 96 patients out of the 100, were able able to remove their allergy label, while only a few of them we had to keep because of nonspecific symptoms um, after the challenge. None of them had a severe reaction. Nobody required additional medication or intervention. It was mainly pruritus or tingling in the mouth, um, but the patient wasn't comfortable with those symptoms and and requested to keep the penicillin on their chart, in their chart, penicillin allergy. All right, so from the same um, study, we showed that pre- before intervention, the vast majority of patients that had a penicillin allergy in their chart were receiving different antibiotics. So they were receiving fluoroquinolones, vancomycin, clindamycin, um, a lot of cephalosporins. And even eight of those patients that had a penicillin allergy in their chart were receiving a penicillin. So sometimes people just don't look at the allergy list. Um, but after testing, They found that the vast majority of these patients were able to switch from an alternative antibiotic to a penicillin, which was probably first line for those situations. Um, And you can see in that first graph, went from 8 to 34 just based on evaluation in the inpatient setting, which directly changed their antibiotic course in the inpatient. There's a lot of advantages to that, right? The cost is much cheaper for many penicillins. A lot of these we can give orally, so they can be discharged from the hospital sooner. Um, Sometimes IV infusions are even easier and they can be discharged um, to a sniff faster because these medications are more available. Um, So a lot of advantages switching it to a penicillin. So how do we determine if the patient is kind of high risk or low risk? So I kind of went over our table, but there are some studies that look at, okay, which patients should we do skin testing for versus which patients can we just challenge? There's no real consensus. Um, there's a lot of different variability between studies but in general there's three main things we look at time since reaction so i think in general 10 plus years very unlikely to be allergic less than 10 years probably need to be a little more conservative symptoms if they're cutaneous only and not sjs or not tn but cutaneous not like mild rash then they're very likely to be not allergic anymore Um, and then the severity of the reaction so if they had anaphylaxis they're more likely to to have significant um they're more likely to be still allergic and so this was a study in the uk tertiary center and they did some multivariate regression analysis and they found three questions to to risk stratify patients they had self-reported anaphylaxis if the patient recalls the actual penicillin that caused the reaction so not just penicillin in general but they remember it was amoxicillin that caused the reaction um, that showed that they're they're more likely to actually be allergic um, and then the time of one year, actually. So if it was more than one year, they're much less likely to be allergic. If it was within the past year, they are more likely to be allergic. So a lot of variability, but I think some general guidelines are, if it's distant, less likely to be allergic. If it was skin only, less likely to be allergic. And if it wasn't anaphylaxis, less likely to be allergic. So who should be doing the testing? Should it be an allergist or should it be a non-allergist? And I think the answer is both. Everybody should be involved in this. Um, lower risk patients, honestly, can be done in a primary care setting, can be done in the hospital by a non-allergist, um, and there's a lot of tools out there that are available now. Um, if you In JAMA, there was a great article published a couple of years ago, kind of a toolbox for evaluation and management of penicillin allergy, and it gives a lot of great resources um, in the article itself for non-allergists to understand how to how to stratify how to do the testing, how to do the challenges. Um, and it's, it's a great resource for both outpatient and inpatient. And then if they're higher risk um, or the patient has a significant anxiety associated with it, then sending to an allergist is, is very reasonable. Alright, so who and when should we be evaluating? We should be evaluating everybody. There really isn't a reason not to evaluate somebody. Um, so especially those patients that are high risk, they're high utilizers of the healthcare system. So if they have chronic disease, CF, diabetes, COPD, asthma, they're immunocompromised, um, if they're immunodeficient, HIV patients, primary immunodeficiency patients, um, or if they have active malignancy. These are all high risk patients. And we've, we've created um, protocols with our um, other services here, like our renal transplant service. Based part of their pre-transplant um, evaluation is drug allergy evaluation. We remove penicillin allergies, we remove self-antibiotic allergies, because we know they're going to need it after their surgery after their transplant same thing with our cf patients so there's a lot of ways to work with um, other services to to really take penicillin out of the equation here penicillin allergies and there's some key opportunities so perioperative time that's a great time to get patients because patients are invested in having good surgical outcomes Um, and the inpatient side they're already sitting there they're doing nothing half the day except getting therapy so that's a great time to do it um, pre-transplant evaluation, like I just mentioned. And then preconception planning. We know in pregnant women, um, having a penicillin allergy label it leads to um, use of alternative antibiotics for GBS-positive status. Uh, so they often use um, a non-penicillin like VANC or Clinda, um, And that leads to increased rates of C-sections. That leads to um, longer hospital stays. So we love to, to manage our pre-pregnant and pregnant women as well. Alright, so we're going to switch gears for a few minutes here and talk about penicillin cross-reactivity. So if you think back to med school, we were often taught that the cross-reactivity between penicillin and cephalosporins were around 10%. That is completely wrong. And the reason where, that, where those numbers came from was the, pen, the cephalosporins originally were actually made from penicillins. So there was a ton of cross-reactivity. And so now that these cephalosporins are much better ways to make the cephalosporins themselves, that the cross-reactivity is significantly less. And so this was a recent meta-analysis. It looked at over 30 papers, great study. And they found that there, the cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins is pretty much due to this R1 side chain. So you can look at this, the diagram on the left here. Um, and so the penicillin has a beta-lactin ring, cephalosporins have the beta-lactin ring. That's not really what we're concerned about. We're concerned about this R1 side chain. And so there are some penicillins and cephalosporins that have a similar R1 side chain, and those are called the aminopenicillins and aminocephalosporins. So the aminopenicillins are amoxicillin and ampicillin. The aminocephalosporins, the main one is cephalexin. So there is some cross-reactivity between those two. So if somebody has a true allergy to amoxicillin, they have a 16% chance of having a allergic reaction to cephalexin. The problem is, the vast majority of these patients have never been evaluated. So when you look at patients that have a allergy label but never been evaluated, then the cross reactivity is tiny because they're more they're unlikely to be allergic in the first place. So this, these cross-reactivity numbers are only in patients that have confirmed penicillin allergies. Uh, but in general, if you're looking at other cephalosporins that don't have the same R1 side chain, the risk is very small. And if you look at this kind of low similarity score, so it's other cephalosporins, is 2%. If you look at prescription cephalosporin, 2% of patients with no allergy history will have an adverse reaction. So we're pretty much back to the general uh, population numbers there. The cross-reactivity between penicillins and carbapenems is pretty much zero. Um, and between penicillins and monobactams, like aztreonam, there's pretty much zero. So no worried about th- that cross-reactivity. So this is the same study. And they looked at, OK, these people have a confirmed penicillin allergy. And then they looked at, OK, what's the cross-reactivity with cephalexin? So this is the one that has the same R1 side chain as some of the penicillins. So 12%, okay, decent number. Then you look at these other cephalosporins like cefazolin, 0% cross-reactivity. Ceftriaxone, 2.5%, which again, is pretty much the same as the general population. 2.5% of people are gonna have an, an, an adverse reaction to a cephalosporin. And cefepime, 0.3%. So it is, there's is no need for additional testing in penicillin allergic patients when you're using 2nd, or 3rd, or 4th generation, or 5th generation um, cephalosporins, or cefazolin. So this is our fancy penicillin-cephalosporin cross-reactivity table that we use here at OHSCO. So this is available for all of our inpatient services, all of our primary care doctors, um, and this is something that um, the inpatient penicillin pharmacist and I made um, not too long ago. I mean, there's a lot of these that are available if you just Google it, Um, but essentially showing that if you're allergic to a penicillin, which cephalosporins are okay to use? And it pretty much shows that every cephalosporin is okay to use except cephalexin. Um, And then there's some, if you're allergic to one cephalosporin, what's the cross-reactivity risk of other cephalosporins? And that's, again, based on the R1 side chain. So if they have a similar R1 side chain, you have these Xs. If they have, or if they're identical, they have the Xs. If they're similar there's the o's um, but if outside of that everything else is very game so i think this provides a lot of reassurance for our providers to be using cephalosporins more frequently in our penicillin allergic patients so takeaway points um always question penicillin allergy labels because we know that they're not true most of the time penicillin allergy labels can um, drastically alter clinical outcomes and lead to increased healthcare. Um, lead to increased healthcare utilization, so if we can remove it, it will improve healthcare utilization, it will improve outcomes. Performing inpatient and or outpatient penicillin evaluations is safe, reliable, and will remove penicillin allergy labels pretty efficiently. Um, And then the cross-reactivity between penicillin and cephalosporin is low, especially in patients that have unconfirmed penicillin allergies. And the vast, you can use pretty much every cephalosporin, and even if they are truly allergic to penicillin, other than cephalexin. Um, we do have a few minutes, and as promised, I did want to just touch base on COVID vaccine medical exemptions and allergic history, because it's such a hot topic right now. So I'm just gonna spend a few minutes here, and then we'll have plenty of time for question and answer. Um, so this is a busy slide, but this is really just the CDC's criteria for who should get a medical exemption. And it's pretty much only patients that have had severe or immediate allergic reactions to the vaccine itself, COVID vaccine itself, or to a known ingredient in the COVID vaccine. Not if they've had a previous reaction to another vaccine or to another drug, that does not fall into the medical exemption category. Only if they've had a known reaction to a known ingredient. Um, So it's very, very, very narrow. Um, and oftentimes they can just get the other other vaccine and safely get that just fine. So far to date, I have written zero medical exemptions because I we've been able to evaluate and get everybody the vaccine that was concerned. So let's go over some recent data. So these these are three JAMA articles that were just published in September of this year. So this is brand hot off the press. Press. Um, so this study was an Israeli study that looked at over 8,000 patients that were that had an allergic history. And 5% of these patients were considered highly allergic. So these were about 62% required, uh, or had reported anaphylaxis to a drug allergy. Um, many of these patients, I think about 30, 40% had multiple drug allergies. Um, and about 25% of these patients carried an EpiPen around. So this is what considered highly allergic. and they give all these people the vaccine under observation and they found 98% of these patients had no immediate type reaction or concerning hypersensitivity reaction to the vaccine. I think that provides us a lot of reassurance. 1.4% of these patients had minor allergic symptoms, so pruritus, tingling, um, maybe a non-specific rash or local site um, uh, swelling, and then 0.7% of these had anaphylactic reactions. So very, very rare, even in this highly allergic population, that we need to be concerned about some kind of reaction. Then we had another study that, again, just came out. And this was surveillance data from eight US health plans. And this is for 11 million doses that were administered. Um, These are all the vaccines, uh, the mRNAs and the the Janssen. And this is for over 6.2 million patients and they showed no increased signal. And what they did was they looked at patients day one to 21 after their vaccine and compared that to the same population of patients from day 22 to 44. So they figured that day 22 to 44 as if they have any symptoms has no, it's, it's nothing to do with the vaccine because we're three weeks out um, and compared it to the patients that just had the vaccine. And so it was, it was a good compared study because it's the same population they're using. And they found no increased signal in patients with an MI, Bell's palsy, um, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, GBS, myocarditis or pericarditis, pulmonary embolism, strokes, and thrombocytopenia, which again provides a lot of reassurance. And then one question I often get is, hey, my patient had Guillain-Barre syndrome with the previous vaccination. They don't want to get the vaccine. Again, another Israeli study took 579 individuals with a GBS history And they gave them one of the mRNA vaccines, because that's what is is approved out there. Um, And pretty much all of them were the Pfizer vaccine. And they found that one patient, 0.2% of them, had recurrence of symptoms that could be considered Guillain-Barre syndrome. We're talking 0.2%. And so when I get these consults, I pretty much share this data with the patient, this data with the primary care provider, and like, the risk of an allergic uh, of a Guillain-Barré recurrence is is exceedingly rare with these vaccines. It is not something that I personally am particularly concerned about. When these people are evaluated or sent to us for evaluation, what do we do? We do a thorough history. We talk to them about what their concerns are, what kind of reactions they've had, and then go through the data, being like, "This is really safe." There's been over 350 million doses given in the US. We have great surveillance data, um, and we have these studies now showing that the risk of allergic immediate type reactions is pretty small. We can do skin testing to peg polyethylene glycol, which is in the mRNA vaccines, or, and then polysorbate, which is in the Janssen vaccine. Um, but it's really not necessary. We did a lot of this initially when we were more concerned about hypersensitivity reactions, but now we've shown that the risk of anaphylaxis with any of these vaccines is about two per million doses given, which is the same as any other vaccine. Um, And so we've kind of stopped doing the skin testing so frequently. We can in some patients if they just really need the reassurance, but it's really not necessary medically. We can also do a split dose challenge, where essentially we give them half the vaccine, watch them for about 30 minutes, make sure they don't have any reaction, excuse me, and then give them the other half of the vaccine right there and then watch them for an hour. That provides them again, some more reassurance that, okay, i are only giving part of the vaccine. If I have a reaction, it's not gonna be as severe, which we do, we've done this with other vaccines for decades. Um, so we're just kind of translating that to the COVID vaccine. Um, and then we can, what we most commonly do is we just do an observed administration in clinic. And so instead of doing it at a pharmacy or a large mass vaccination site, we just say, okay, come to our clinic, we'll give you the vaccine. You can hang out in one of our rooms, we'll monitor you for an hour, make sure nothing happens. And a lot of patients find that really reassuring and I'm able to get a lot of people vaccinated that way that probably wouldn't have gotten vaccinated otherwise. So, um, I think, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Um, And we have about 10 minutes for questions. So look forward to, to a lot of questions, hopefully.
0: Great. great, great, thank, great. You, so thank much, you so much, Dr. Um I'll just start off with uh, the question, piggybacking on um, the COVID vaccine.
1: Sure.
0: Um, this was partially addressed uh, in your presentation, but um, the person notes, it seems like PEG is the most likely cause of reaction to COVID vaccines. Is it possible that people are developing allergy to PEG from its presence in other medications, cosmetics, and cleaning products? Also, um, I know of a colleague with two anaphylactic reactions to previous vaccines that contain PEG. What could be used for pre-treatment to prevent a reaction to the PEG in the vaccine?
1: Okay, loaded question, I love it. Um, So there's different types of reactions you can have to, to PEG. Um, The most common one is a um, type 4 hypersensitivity. So that's what we consider like our um, allergic contact dermatitis. and that's PEG is is in a lot of cosmetic products and things like that. If a person has that kind of allergy, we're not worried about it. They can get the vaccine. The amounts that are in the vaccine are so small that the chance of a a significant delayed hypersensitivity reaction is unlikely. What we worry about is an IgE-mediated reaction to PEG, which is exceedingly rare these patients almost always have a reaction to Miralax, that they've had a reaction during bowel prep or something that they had anaphylaxis to Miralax. If they don't have a history of that, um, then I'd pretty much consider them non-allergic. The big question is, so yeah, if we have a patient that has had multiple or even one anaphylactic reaction to a vaccine that contained PEG, then it's a little bit trickier. And in those patients, I would say testing would be reasonable in that situation. So we would do skin testing to PEG and we can do that in a couple of ways. We honestly just, we actually get Miralax and we do skin prick testing to Miralax, but then we can also do skin prick and intradermal testing to other medications that contain PEG. And if the testing is negative, then we'll proceed with a in-office challenge. If the testing is positive, then we're like, okay, we've confirmed this. We're not basing this just on history. We have objective data showing that This person is a higher risk for a true allergic reaction, and we move on, and and we say you can't get this. The good news is we have another vaccine. The Janssen vaccine contains no PEG, and so that may be a very reasonable option for them to go by. The cross-reactivity between PEG and polysorbate is highly debatable, and it's probably not that high. And so most of these patients that have an allergy to PEG can receive the Janssen vaccine perfectly fine. You know, honestly, a lot of it's just a risk-benefit discussion with the patient, is what's going to be worse, you getting COVID or potentially having an allergic reaction, which we can manage. We can manage it here. We can manage it. Most people can manage anaphylaxis. Um, And so in general, the benefits far outweigh the risks. And that's the same thing with Guillain-Barre. You're more likely to get Guillain-Barre from COVID than you are from the vaccine. And so if you tell patients that, they're like, oh, okay, I'll get the vaccine.
0: Great, great, thanks. Uh, Thanks for your clarity on that. And we'll pivot to a few questions about um, penicillin allergy, some of which, um, again, I think were clarified during your presentation. But just to reinforce, we'll revisit these questions. Um, So first, can most patients with uh, reported penicillin allergy handle aminopenicillins, specifically wondering about amoxicillin and piptazo? um having seen some data that reported low cross reactivity such as two percent
1: so people with a known penicillin allergy label can they receive an aminopenicillin? so i would say the, the data is probably good because most people who have this label aren't allergic in the first place um, but i would say they would need an evaluation before just giving them an amino because they're still penicillins Um, the, The easiest thing to do if you're in the inpatient setting or outpatient setting is to just do a test dose challenge. If they're in your clinic or if they're in the hospital, give them a small dose of the penicillin and see how they do. If they do okay, give them the full dose and then just have the nurse or have somebody monitor them. Then you did the entire evaluation right then and there and you can give them the penicillin going forward.
0: Great, thanks so much. Um, That helps a lot. Um, And we didn't see this mentioned in your presentation. Just a quick question. Is there any role for allergen-specific laboratory testing in the assessment of penicillin allergy, such as looking for an antibody directed against penicillin rather than doing something like a skin prick test?
1: Great question. And the reason it was left out is because it's not good. Um, There is available, and you can get this. There's several labs around the country that'll do it um and the sensitivity and specificity is really just not good um it it almost always overcalls it so some patients may have this antibody but can actually tolerate penicillin just fine and that's the same issue we see with food allergies if somebody's allergic to if somebody if you do a full panel of food allergies on somebody like me i have no food allergies do 100 tests on me 10 are gonna come back positive i'm not allergic to any of those foods so that's the same issue with specific IgE testing in general with foods and drugs that it's not really as helpful. It's much better to do skin testing or a direct challenge. The numbers, the sensitivity and specificity are just so much better.
0: Great, thanks so much. Um, and again, it really appreciated your sharing um, the, the graphic looking at the cross reactivity with the penicillins and the cephalosporins. Um, again, just for clarity, would you still do either skin testing or a graded oral challenge? For patients who are getting a second generation cephalosporin and have a history of penicillin allergy?
1: No, I would just give it to them. Um, and I think there's enough data out there to support that um, practice. Uh, doing the additional testing or anything is, is really not necessary, especially in most of these patients that are not actually penicillin confirmed, penicillin allergic confirmed, that it's totally safe to do it. And that's, that's why we made this graph is So for our hospitalists to feel, uh, hospitals or intensivists, to feel empowered to to do that and not waste time or not um, have to go through a whole evaluation process, it's just to use it.
0: That's great. Thanks so much. I see some of these questions coming from our hospitalist colleagues, and really reassuring to see all that nice green. Uh, yes, there's a lot of green our, <laughs> on our chart. Um, yes. And then I think you've also emphasized the point that you know many patients by a more thorough history we may also evade the need for testing Um, and maybe as follow up to that any advice um, that you have or successful communication strategies with patients who have been um, relieved of their penicillin allergy uh, but who continue to report it to subsequent physicians.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't have time for this in the talk, but I have a couple slides on that exactly. So in the past, there've been studies that have looked at, okay, what's the chance of them being relabeled? And in the previous, it was pretty high. Um, And so there are certain strategies you can do to actually remove it. And so counseling um, them, remove the allergy itself, Um, sometimes counseling them post-discharge. So in their follow-up visit with their PCP, just making a note being like, PCP needs to reinforce that they're not allergic or after testing. Um, You can also put a best practice advisory in the EMR, so when somebody tries to relabel it, so that happens here, there'll be a sign, hey, this person was tested and was negative. Do you really want to add this? And that prevents a lot of people from adding it. And then this, I think, is our best intervention. Every time they go through a challenge, we give them this little wallet-sized card. It fits perfectly in their wallet, folds over, and it says their name, date of birth. They had testing that was negative for penicillin on this date by this doctor. And so if they're, they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy is like, I don't believe you, they're like, I have a card. Um, and it, it really does remind the patient. And the patients love these. They carry it around with them. They're excited. Um, and I think it really reinforces it to them that you're not allergic, you're not allergic, you're not allergic. And we just submitted a paper looking at this and just doing the card itself where our relabel rate is around 2.5%. So it's just this is really where the money is at is with these cards.
0: This is so great. Proud, proud, card carrying member. Um, yes. and thanks for the fantastic quality improvement work um, inspiring to spread. Um, one last point of clarification right at the top of the hour um, in our comments of going ahead and doing the second generation cephalosporins in patients. True, even if it's anaphylaxis in the past to penicillin. Yes. Sounds like yes, great. Well, with that vote of confidence, I think we're at nine o'clock. And thank you so much, Dr. Joshi. We'll see everybody next week.
1: All right, thank you.